0: My theme for this morning is being human, being sexual beings. Uh, If you're visiting with us, I should just explain that we've been working our way through a series, a series about being human, looking at practical aspects of what it means to be human and to be a Christian. And this morning is the first of two sermons on this particular theme. Uh, God willing, we'll be developing this a bit more uh, next Sunday morning. I'd like to read a passage of scripture and you might like to turn to it. You'll find it in Genesis chapter 1, so it won't be too hard to find. Uh, If you're using the Bible that's in the pew in front of you, it's the very first book in the Bible and the very first page of that book. So let's hear what the scripture has to say to us. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. God saw that the light was good, and he separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning, the first day. And God said, let there be an expanse between the waters, to separate water from water. So God made the expanse and separated the water under the expanse from the water above it. And it was so. God called the expanse sky, and there was evening, and there was morning, the second day. And God said, let the water under the sky be gathered to one place, and let dry ground appear. And it was so. God called the dry ground land, and the gathered waters he called seas, and God saw that it was good. Then God said, let the land produce vegetation, seed-bearing plants, and trees on the land that bear fruit seed within it, according to various kinds. And it was so the land produced vegetation, plants bearing seed according to their kinds, and trees bearing fruit with seed in it according to their kinds. And God saw that it was good, and there was evening, and there was morning, the third day. God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the sky to separate the day from the night, and let them serve as signs to mark seasons and days and years, and let them be lights in the expanse of the sky to give light on the earth. And it was so. God made two great lights, the greater light to govern the day, and the lesser light to govern the night. He also made the stars. God set them in the expanse of the sky to give light on the earth, to govern the day and the night, and to separate light from darkness. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the fourth day. And God said, let the water teem with living creatures, and let birds fly above the earth, across the expanse of the sky. So God created the great creatures of the sea, and every living and moving thing with which the water teems, according to their kinds, and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. God blessed them and said, Be fruitful and increase in number and fill the, the waters in the seas and let the birds increase on the earth. And there was evening and there was morning the fifth day. And God said, Let the land produce living creatures according to their kinds, livestock, creatures that move along the ground, and wild animals, each according to its kind. And it was so. God made the wild animals according to their kinds, the livestock according to their kinds, and all the creatures that move along the ground according to their kinds. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, Let us make man in our image, in our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air, over the livestock, over all the earth, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female. He created them. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and over every living creature that moves in the ground. Then God says, "I give," said, I give you every seed-bearing plant on the face of the whole earth and every tree that has fruit with seed in it and they will be yours for food. And to all the beasts of the earth and all the birds of the air and all the creatures that move in the ground, everything that has the breath of life in it, I give every green plant for food, and it was so. God saw all that he had made, and it was very good. And it was evening, and it was morning the sixth day. Thus the heavens and the earth were completed in all their vast array. By the seventh day God had finished the work he had been doing, so on the seventh day he rested from all his work. And God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it he rested from all the work of creating that he had done. And we'll end the reading there at this point in God's word. It's one of the most obvious aspects of our humanity, yet one we find so often in the Christian church the most difficult to address or to discuss. To be human means to have a body. As Christians, we don't subscribe to the idea that the human body is an afterthought It is an essential part of what it means to be human. To have a body means to be a sexual being. I think there's a number of reasons why, particularly in evangelical circles, discussion on this subject is sometimes problematic. I think, first of all, there can be misunderstanding of some of Paul's teaching. Paul's references, for example, in 2 Corinthians 5, verses 1 to 10, about putting off this earthly tabernacle, as he puts it, was not an attempt to talk about the body as something that didn't matter or was some kind of evil which you needed to be rid of. It's clear that he's looking forward to something greater in that context, our heavenly dwelling. And we know from 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and the extensive material that is in there, that Paul expected that we would have resurrection bodies. Paul also makes a reference to not speaking publicly about shameful matters in the context of sexuality in Ephesians 5 verse 12. And sometimes this has either been read as an embargo about speaking about issues to do with sexuality or a jolly good excuse to avoid them. Actually, Paul's reference is about not highlighting shameful and dark practices. It's not an embargo on discussing the issue of human sexuality. Paul is himself quite explicit in some of his teachings. For example, about the sexual relations between married couples in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. I think a second reason why sometimes the subject is difficult or avoided is the lack of intimacy and the formal nature of most of our relationships as Christians. It's not easy to open up on the subject of sexuality with people you only know in a formalized context. It's not easy to open them up for discussion because we have a dreadful sense of vulnerability sometimes. It's okay to restate basic principles from the pulpit, but that's far enough away not to be getting up close and personal. I think a third reason why sometimes this is very difficult to address is genuine sensitivity. In any church context, like Windsor, we work on the assumption that there are people who are inevitably going to struggle with sexual identity, with sexual guilt, sexual inferiority, with history of sexual abuse or hurt or shame. And a great deal of damage can be done from here, from the pulpit. Generalizations about sexual issues can cause deep hurt for someone who is struggling with sexual issues. Gland statements about the nature of sexual behavior or experience could be genuinely offensive. For these and other reasons, sexuality is, if not a taboo subject, one we'd rather skip over than risk getting sucked into the quicksand of controversy or personal embarrassment. One thing that has been very obvious to me in considering this series on being human is that you can't possibly do a series on being human and not deal with issues of sexuality. In fact, the more I've thought about it, the more ashamed I am that it isn't something that I've addressed more directly in my preaching over the years. Over the next two weeks, this week and next week, I want to raise some issues and explore some Bible themes, and I'd be happy to return to this in the new year. That's not because I'm running away after the second one. It's just the way the church program works with the church weekend and me in Nepal and Christmas. It'll be the new year before we pick this up again. And in that context, I would be very interested, obviously, in anything that you have to say that you don't like, don't agree with, think is being avoided. think I'm skirting around or whatever, because I'd be very happy to come back to these subjects in the new year. My theme for this morning, quite simply, is in the image of God male and female and the outline that I want to work on this morning is this very simple outline to speak a bit about the condition of being male and female to speak about some of the contradictions that we experience as Christians in this context and also to suggest some conclusions the key text to reflect on this morning is Genesis chapter 1 verse 27 where God created man in his own image in the image of God he created him male and female he created them The term for man that appears here in Genesis chapter 127 is the term Adam. Adam is both a generic term for mankind or humankind and a proper name in the book of Genesis. It means simply that the word functions in two ways. It serves as a term to describe humankind in general and also a male person of antiquity. In fact, the word Adam actually appears 555 times apparently in the Old Testament, not that I counted them. And in Ezekiel, it appears 132 times, 93 of which are when the prophet is using a phrase, which if you're familiar with Ezekiel, you will know, where he constantly uses this phrase about the son of man or as a son of man. And the term is the same as Genesis 1. Just when it appears in Genesis as a proper name is debated. And there are at least five different references, Genesis 2.19, 2.20, 3.17, 3.21, 4.25, where people would argue those are the key points, one of those would be the key point, uh, where the term becomes a proper name of an individual. But my point this morning in identifying this is simply to say that man here, when you read it, in Genesis 1, verse 26 and 27, is not a reference to the creation of a male individual called Adam with a female afterthought being created, nor a reference directly to the person who comes on the scene on chapters 2, 3 and 4, although that is how we then know who he is. But it is a reference to God creating humankind, male and female, in his image. The point is that the Bible is very clear. When God decided to make human beings, he did so deliberately in his image and as male and female. He made us in his image. He made us to rule, to manage his creation. That's very clear from verse 26 of chapter 1. He made us to be fruitful and to fill the earth. He made us sexual beings, male and female. That was always the plan. It was not an afterthought. Being a sexual being is not a bad thing. It's not an accident. It's not an afterthought. Consequently, sex and sexuality cannot be considered as something inherently bad or evil. Now, we also need to recognize that what the Bible says in these verses is a bit of a one-way street. What I mean is, the Bible says we can know that we are in some way made in the image and likeness of God, but that's not quite the same thing as saying that God is like us. We need to be careful. And the reason we need to be careful about this is that some want to assume that God is both male and female and give God a sexuality of some kind or another. And the Bible doesn't give us any grounds to do that. God in the Bible is not male, though he is referred to as father. The fact that Jesus taught us to relate to God as Father is not a designation of God's maleness, but his caring, loving, authoritative role in our lives. And as we stand before God in worship here this morning, we do so as male and female, made differently, but equally made in the image of God. Being male and female, being made sexually different, ...has clearly both physical and psychological implications. Our bodies have different bits, to put it simply. And we have a different experience of what it means to have a body. We bought a set of scales recently. I'm not going to go back onto that muffin top stuff, but anyway. But they're dead clever scales... They work out for you your body mass, your body fat, and your H2O content. I first saw this done when a student was coming to do some research on my father when he was suffering from Alzheimer's disease, and they stuck tiny electrodes on his toes and were able to measure all of these things. But now you don't need students to do that for you with a little electrodes. You can buy a pair of scales, which will do it all for you. And what is striking to a non-medic and non-scientist like me is that clearly men and women are different. Because with the scales comes a little booklet, they're very intelligent scales, you need a book to understand them. And they tell you not only your weight, and which of the two of you is heavier, and I'll leave that to your imagination, but they tell you also what your body fat percentage is, and they have a little guide which gives you a rough idea of what a man's should be, and what a woman's should be at our particular age and stage in life body fat for someone of my age should be somewhere between 15-20% to 20%, and that would be acceptable for a female it should be somewhere between 20-25% to 25%. why the difference? your body hydration levels apparently are different for men and women for men they're suggesting it should be around 60-65% for women 50-55% then of course I suppose if women have more body fat there can't be as much water and that makes certain sense The point is, we are made up of exactly the same chemicals and exactly the same materials, but the composition is different. It's a fact about us physically. It's a fact about our sexual reproductive organs. It's a fact about our bodies and the way in which they are constructed and the way in which God has designed them. Our experience of bodies is different. Men know nothing, really, about the whole menstrual thing. Our relationship with our bodies doesn't include period pains, bleeding, and psychotic mood swings. Our roles in. Sorry, okay. Our roles in the reproductive process is different. Depending on just how excited they are, men contribute for anywhere between 30 seconds and a few minutes at the point of conception, women contribute for the next nine months, at least. The whole encounter with sexual experience tends, generally speaking, to be very different for women and for men. Pornography, for example, is primarily a male consumer constituency. Not exclusively, but primarily. Why? Because men are more sexually stimulated by what they see than women tend to be. Women, generally speaking, are more interested in receiving understanding, affection and warmth. Men are just fired up by whatever is in front of them. The fact that neither very often understands this fundamental difference often leads to all kinds of crisis. It's often been said that the United States and the United Kingdom are two countries separated by a common language. Something similar can be said of men and women, two human beings separated by the common experience of being sexual beings. God didn't make us asexual, He didn't make us bisexual. God designed the process so that the difference would create a complementary relationship and that the coming together in relationship would create community. At the time when Genesis was written, not everyone believed this to be obviously true. Some believed that man was created bisexual with the differentiation coming later on for various reasons. Some believed that humans were created to serve the gods, not made in their image. But the Bible context is very clear. We are made in the image of God and we are made differently. The condition of being male and female. Humankind made in the image of God. The same image, but different bodies. Well, that's all very simple and very straightforward. But what about this issue of contradictions? Sexual difference, we can understand. The contradictions that our sexuality throws up for us as people is much more difficult to understand. Specifically, here we are as men and women in this room, made in the image of God, gathered to worship God, yet probably quite a few of us finding that our sexuality, our sexual desires, our sexual frustration is at odds at times with the declaration of worship that we offer to God. As singing is one of our shared experiences and expressions of worship, I've been thinking about some of the key themes that occurs as we sing songs together. For example, we sing of God's goodness, but we might be sore about our isolation, our lack of companionship, or of meaningful sexual experience. And to sing of God's goodness may still leave us feeling very, very denied. We may sing of God's holiness, and be confused by the fact that, as we sing, we know that we ourselves are so easily distracted uh, by the sight of men or women even near us in this room, and find ourselves capable of sexual fantasies in the most inappropriate context, even the context of worship. We feel ourselves, therefore, to be very unholy and wondering about whether there is any real meaning or integrity in our worship. We sing of God's forgiveness. And while we believe in the concepts of salvation, of atonement, of heaven, sometimes we may struggle to believe that we are actually forgiven for past or recent sexual sin or lust. We sing of God's love, but we may long to know what love is. While we are actually caught in a functional but unloving relationship, or hamstrung by abusive sexual experience, or sick at heart with the lack of meaningful companionship or sexual fulfillment. We sing together in our praise as part of a Christian community, but maybe wonder how long we would continue to be accepted if our sexual past or struggle with our sexuality or struggle with our sexual orientation were to be known in the congregation. There is, I think, nothing as powerful in creating a status quo of permanent deceit in the Christian life as our struggles with our sexuality. I think that this this business of arriving at a status quo of permanent deceit is an increasing problem for us as Christians in our society. In a society which is becoming more and more open about sexual experience and sexual experimentation. How are we, and more specifically, how are young people, meant to walk any kind of moral, chaste life in the midst of the visual and verbal assault on our senses at every turn? And are we really meant to take seriously and literally the kind of moral standards that appear to be set in Scripture given the context and changing context of our own society and culture? Are we really expected to be sexually continent? While many of the great characters of scripture got away with multiple marriages, concubines and various sexual partners. Never mind the contradictions I feel in myself, some of which may be outlined here on the screen. Are there not other serious contradictions about culture and scripture which cause me problems? I think these are many of the things that sometimes people struggle with as we deal with what it means to be human and to be sexual beings and Christians. Here are a few things I want to leave with you this morning as we open up this theme. Some conclusions. First of all, you are created as a sexual being, but your sexual experience is not the measure of your worth as a human being. You are created as a sexual being, but your sexual experience is not the measure of your worth As a human being, our society believes that the converse is true. Our society believes that the measure of your worth as a human being can be judged by the extent of your sexual experience or fulfilment. That is the constant, consistent message that is given to us in our society. It is no longer just the late adolescent peer pressure that leaves young men and women feeling like they are a nobody. It is a transgenerational pressure, encouraged by voyeuristic and moronic marketing and media programs like Big Brother, in which increasingly the big fascination is to see who's going to have it off with who, and will we get it on camera. In our society, you have more credibility as a sexually active homosexual or lesbian than as a straight virgin. The Bible does not pretend that we are anything other than sexual beings. But it is clear that our worth is given by being made in the image of God and not measured by our sexual activity or experience. The Bible does not pretend that there are not struggles, failures, and consequences in regard to our sexuality and managing our sexuality. But it refuses to allow that the purposes of God for us are determined either by our sexual fidelity or infidelity. Whether you sit here as someone who has little by way of struggle with your sexuality or sexual desires, or whether you sit here as someone who feels yourself to be crippled by these things, you need to bear in mind that your worth is determined by the fact that God made you in his image and Christ died for you. Your worth is not measured in any scale of sexual experience which you may have had or the I don't have any sexual issues scale. And God can take you and deal with you and use you as he finds you. The second thing I want to say is that the essential pattern of marriage being the proper setting for sexual expression is set in the opening chapters of Genesis and reinforced by the teaching of Jesus. The basic statement concerning the nature of human sexuality, which determines how the Bible approaches this, is made for us in Genesis chapter 1, the passage that we read together, particularly verses 26 and 27. The exposition, if you like, of that difference begins in Genesis chapter 2. In Genesis chapter 2, verse 18, we have the scripture explaining the necessity of companionship and help. In chapter 2, verse 24, it's very clear that the fullest expression of that companionship is meant to be and intended to be marriage because the way in which that whole section is brought together and that whole exposition of male and female is summarized in these words in verse 24. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and they will become one flesh. In chapter 4 and verse 1, the pattern for sexual expression Uh, is obviously seen to be within marriage in that Adam has sexual intercourse with his wife Eve and she conceives. Now what binds us as Christians to this view is not merely the historical record of Adam and Eve having sex as a couple. You could argue, I suppose, they didn't have any choice of partners according to Genesis. But what binds us to this view is that this is understood to be the purposes of God as is reinforced in the teachings of the new testament for example jesus in matthew chapter 19 in verses 4 to 6 when he is being quizzed on the issue of divorce where does he go to to define what marriage is and what its context is he goes straight back to genesis and he reiterates the teaching of genesis in matthew 19 verses 4 to 6 jesus view on this is further seen in his teaching on the sermon on the mount Where in chapter 5 and verses 25 to 28, he speaks very clearly of lust and lusting after a man, lusting after another woman, as a form of adultery. When a woman is brought to Jesus in John chapter 8, accused of adultery, caught in the act of adultery, Jesus has no hesitation in labeling her action as sinful. One of the startling features of that is the measure of his forgiveness but he, he is not slow to label the sexual experience outside of marriage as sinful. And all of this is reinforced throughout the rest of the New Testament, and there are many other passages of Scripture we could go to in Paul and elsewhere. Despite what our enlightened society would argue, sexual expression is intended for the context of marriage and not beyond it. Maybe I should rephrase that. Sexual intercourse is intended for the context of marriage and not beyond it. This has implications for both heterosexuals and homosexuals in equal measure. Thirdly, we need to face the reality of our fallenness and not expect to find a victorious asexual life experience awaiting us from now to glory. Sometimes in this area, pastors or counselors or those severely afflicted by sexual temptation want to believe that there is some kind of victorious life ahead in which you cease to be a sexual being, where sexual issues are forever a thing of the past and they will never be a problem for you ever again. Well, I suppose there is, but it's actually the next life. It's not this one. It is true to say that people change, that desires change. Isn't that what Ecclesiastes says in Ecclesiastes 12? Remember your creator in the days of your youth, before the days of trouble come and the years approach when you will say, I find no pleasure in them. And it goes on to say in verse 5, when men are afraid of heights and of dangers in the streets, when the almond tree blossoms and the grasshopper drags himself along and desire is no longer stirred. The experience of sexuality very often changes throughout life in the different stages of life. But the reality for many is that we have to manage our sexuality by the help and grace of God and our fellow Christians rather than long or strive for some higher non-sexual life this side of eternity. It doesn't exist. God made us male and female. He made us as sexual beings. Like our physical health, this is an issue that we have to live with. Some people who struggle with ill health are no less Christians. That's obvious. Some people who have to struggle with psychological or mental health problems are no less Christians. That's obvious. Some people who struggle with sexual contradictions are no less Christians. That should be obvious. For all of these things are expressions of our common humanity and our common fallenness which takes me to four, the threshold of grace. The measure of our understanding of grace may be the degree to which we believe it applies in the realms of our sexuality and sexual experience. We all have what I've called here our thresholds of grace. The point at which we don't think grace extends any further. For some of us, that threshold Is our enemies. People who have done us harm, or people we do not like, or people we have been brought up and taught to hate. And as far as we are concerned, grace couldn't possibly go that far. There is a threshold. For some of us, it is ironically people we know well. We know them so well that we cannot imagine the grace of God breaking into their lives in salvation, and in transformation. And sometimes it's simply that we know people so well sets a threshold on God's grace in our lives. For some of us, it is ourselves. And particularly because of our awareness of the contradictions in our lives around our sexuality. The grace of God can't possibly extend to me. The story of many of the characters in Scripture who struggled in the area of sexuality, whether it was Abraham and Isaac, whether it was David, whether it was Solomon, is not there to confuse us. It's not there to provide a license for immoral behavior. Their stories are recounted for us as warnings and signs that the grace of God can extend to those who struggle with their sexuality and to those who make a mess. The challenge of grace is to believe that there is no sexual experience or exploitation that will go beyond the bounds of God's forgiving or healing grace. The challenge of grace is to believe that knowing myself in the private world of my struggles, in the area of my sexuality, God also knows me and is willing to love me with an uncomplicated, non-exploiting love in Christ. In the words of Psalm 139, O Lord, you have searched me, and you know me. You know when I sit and when I rise, you perceive my thoughts from afar. You discern my going out and my lying down. You are familiar with all my ways. Before a word is on my tongue, you know it completely, O Lord. You hem me in, behind and before. You have laid your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too scary for me. Well, that's not actually what the text says. The text says such knowledge is too wonderful for me. Too lofty for me to attain. That God, knowing us in the depths and clarity in which he knows us, is willing to deal with us, eager to deal with us, in mercy and grace. So it happens that this evening, in the series we're doing in David, we come to 2 Samuel chapters 10, 11, and 12 this evening, which is the story of David and Bathsheba, set in another context, the story of David's kingship and his dealing with the Ammonites. We could this morning go on to explore the significance of the fact that Jesus was single. And yet the scripture tells us very clearly that he was subject to every kind of temptation that we are. What does that mean? And where does that take us? But we'll leave that for next week. When I want to look at some aspects of the issues of marriage, same-sex relationships and singleness. I said at the beginning that these subjects are not often dealt with and not easily dealt with. I am terribly conscious. That some of the things I have said here this morning may have been unhelpful to someone. If that's the case, it would be helpful for me to know that. And I can assure you it will not be me trying to sort you out. I would appreciate your fellowship in this if there are things that you think I need to hear or questions that I need to be addressing. Thank you. Let's be quiet together in God's presence for a minute and then in a moment or two we're going to sing our closing hymn Father we commit ourselves to your care to your love and to your grace we share much in common as we meet together in this place and yet we recognize that our experiences our lives our needs are very different forgive us Lord for making judgments about one another and about what it means to be a Christian based on what we see on the surface we recognize that it's all too easy to make judgments on the cars in the car park, the clothes on our back the jobs that we do and to make totally unfounded assumptions about who we are as people and the issues that really matter to us and so we pray this morning for a sense of compassion for one another and a sense of understanding of your great compassion and love for us in Christ. We pray that you would help us to be able to be open before you in all aspects of our lives and our being. Our Father, we reflect on this theme this morning and we do so recognizing that this very theme has become national news in the United States and in other parts of the world as the pastor of that new life community church and President of the National Association of Evangelicals in the States has been dismissed from office because of issues of sexual morality. Our Father, we are weak and we are vulnerable. We want to rejoice in the fact that you have chosen to make us the way you did. We want to understand what it means to be able to rejoice in that with freedom and with liberty. But we want to also know what the thresholds are in terms of behavior and attitude we want to know what it means to do what is right in every situation we recognize that your glory is to be seen in justice and judgment as much as in love and compassion and that while the evangelical world might very much like to brush this pastor and his life under the carpet, it is you who brings him to the fore, no one else and therefore we want to live our lives carefully and honestly before you But to do this, we need to be reassured of your grace. We need to be reassured of the acceptance that we have before you in Christ. And we pray that you might comfort us in this. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.